If you would, please take your Bibles out to Luke chapter 11. We're going to begin there, and I'm going to set a little context for our message tonight. A little context for our message tonight. We'll begin in Luke chapter 11. But what we've basically done is studied how the Lord works in heaven with a message entitled The Ministry of Angels. Then last evening we looked at how the Lord wanted to reflect that model of ministry on the earth and he established Israel, not only the sanctuary, but also the entire camp as a reflection of the working order of heaven. And I believe this is so important to the Lord because we see in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives this model prayer and I've been basing each message, uh, tonight's included and tomorrow as well, on this very, very small, but I think powerful mess, uh, model prayer, where it says in verse 2 of Luke chapter 11, so he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and notice this now, your will be done where? On earth as it is where? So it's incumbent upon us to understand how the Lord works in heaven if we're ever going to do his work correctly on the earth. And we saw that in heaven, the Lord uses not just the Godhead and not just the four living creatures, not just the 24 elders, those central figures, those leaders in the courts of heaven, but out in the camp, there are literally hundreds of millions of angels, and all through scripture, the angels are the ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. And we saw last night, of course, that that exact same model of organization was in the Old Testament church, and tonight is simply the logical extension as we move forward in time to the New Testament church, of course, its founder, Jesus Christ, and the apostles who ministered in his wake after he ascended into heaven. So that's the basic structure of our series. And now as we dive into a specific study of the word, let us begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for these precious hours of Sabbath rest Thank you for this fellowship that provides. Thank you that we can come apart in this safe and beautiful environment. And, and now, Lord, commune with you through your word. I ask a special blessing that you not only pour out your Holy Spirit in some sort of general, atmospheric way, but, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to each individual heart. Convict us of our need of you and our shortcomings. And, Lord, teach us to be ministers for you as you would have us do it. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So now we're going to turn our attention to the New Testament. And of course, as soon as you're introduced to the New Testament, you're introduced to the central figure of all scripture, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ begins his ministry, and I want to set the premise tonight that Jesus Christ was a walking, living, breathing, training center for Christian workers. He was much, much more of a teacher than he was a preacher and he was a trainer and equipper of other people. Basically taking that model of heaven, that Old Testament model, and bringing it to life in his very person. He was a training center for Christian workers. Matthew chapter 4. Let's illustrate this point and develop it through a Bible study tonight. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 18. Jesus starts collecting his first disciples. Some of his earliest recorded activities after you know, in the same chapter, it records the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness shortly after he's baptized. Then he goes back and announces his ministry publicly in Nazareth. And then it says in verse 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother. 
casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And verse 19 records, then he said to them, follow me and I will do what? Make you. Notice he says, if you follow me, I'm going to turn you into something. He didn't say, follow me and watch. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Of course, using the analogy of what they're already doing there, you think fishing for fish is a great way to you fish for men. I'm going to turn you into that if you follow me. Notice that following Jesus is training. Following Jesus is training to do ministry. And of course, they wasn't, those were the only ones he picked up. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee's father, uh, with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them and immediately left their boat and their father and followed him. And likely Jesus used the same line of introduction. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. From the very opening of Jesus' ministry, He's making people into fishers of men. This becomes a theme throughout the rest of the gospel record. Let's go to the book of John, chapter 3. Right from the start, Jesus starts employing his disciples as his ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. Just as he had commanded the angel hosts in heaven, now he comes to earth and does the exact same thing. John, chapter 3. After the encounter with Nicodemus, we read in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. Now keep that in the back of your mind. Jesus and his disciples came there and baptized. Now, verse 23, John also was baptizing Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. So for a very brief amount of time, the baptism ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ overlapped. And they were relatively near each other and it was almost a, a, not a competition in their minds, of course, it was complementary, but other people saw it as competitive. In fact, that's exactly the problem. Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Basically, the complaint is he has set up shop just down the street and you're losing business. They're all going to him. And of course, John the Baptist gives beautiful answer and we're not going to study that now, but basically he says, I must decrease and he must increase. He saw this as the natural transition, like a Venn diagram overlapping. It's time to move on and pass the baton to the one who is to come after me. And of course, shortly thereafter, John, as it mentions, alludes to in verse 24 there, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Basically, John, who Jesus calls the greatest of the prophets in all of Scripture, had one purpose, to point out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, start a, a movement that would prepare people for his coming, and as soon as he was at, done with that, to move out of the way. That was his entire ministry, was to lead people to Jesus and move out of the way. He understood that. Now, chapter 4 continues. Watch this now. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Now, carefully look at verse 2. Parenthetical statement, but it's important to our theme. Though Jesus himself did not do what? 
How many people did Jesus ever baptize? Zero. Jesus never baptized anyone. So who did the baptizing? His disciples. The ones he was going to make into fishers and men. Basically, Jesus would go set up shop, if you will, to use no better term, but he would do his ministry, but he would always consistently, over and over, use his disciples, his followers, as the active agents of the message, of the ministry. It's fascinating. Now, we're going to dive into this a little bit deeper. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And we'll just start with verse 1. We often think that Jesus sent out his disciples, who then were apostles, after he left. But that's not true. I mean, it is true that that occurred, but that's not the first time it occurred. He started training them on how to do their ministry long before he left. Again, I believe the premise is that Jesus was a walking, living, breathing, training center for Christian workers. Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Basically, Jesus didn't say, now you're going to go to, you know, Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He didn't do that. But just where I'm about to go, go ahead of me and take some, I'll catch up but I want you to start putting these things into practice. What you've seen me do, now I want you to do. Preach the gospel, heal it. The very things that Jesus said of himself, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, that was his purpose, he said, now I want you, while I'm still with you, to practice, to do it again. In fact, that's not the only time he does that. Turn over just one page, Luke chapter 10, the very next chapter, verse 1. Scripture records, and these things the Lord and after these things the Lord appointed seventy others also, other than whom? The disciples, the twelve who had already gone out. So he adds to that number seventy also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus didn't send them out. And then say, good luck, and then he just went on the rest of his ministry. No, 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 he had a plan, a follow-up plan. You start, do the things I've taught you, put into practice the things you've witnessed and I've trained you for. Now go out ahead, you're going to get your little training wheels on, and you're going to do some ministry, and I'm going to follow up and likely fix some stuff that went wrong. It's okay, but go to work. At least practice going to work. I'll be behind you, I'll come up and help. But you need to start now. In fact, look what he says in verse 2. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the what is few? The laborers, the workers, that's what's few. Those are what's missing. Those laborers. So obviously what he's training them to do is to be laborers for the gospel. You go out, you don't need me here. Now you would think, well... Look, Jesus, we only have a certain amount of time with you. What we're going to do is sit at your feet. Very in academic setting. You're going to teach us all these things. We're going to look through wisdom. And then when you go, then we'll start. 
Mrs. White makes a very uh, interesting statement about training Christian workers. It's a pretty salient observation that it is in the water and not on the land that a man learns to swim. Right? It's in the water that you learn to swim. That has a certain amount of logic to it, yes? Like if you saw someone practicing swimming on the land, it would... And I, I thought about, you know, but you don't even have to see me because that would look, and this is recorded. <laughs> but you get the picture. Someone practicing on the land for swimming, it's like, don't worry, I'm just training, you know, for, for, when, a, for when a river just springs up on you, you know. But that's not what you do. He said, if you want to learn how to swim, it's revolutionary, get in the water. Too many Christians, I'm going to start preaching just about now, but I'm, not, I'm going to hold it in just a little bit, okay? We talk about doing ministry on the land. We need Christians in the water. All right, that was all in parentheses. We're coming back now, all right? That's not the punchline yet, but we're getting there. The workers are few. By the way, just an interesting tie to the Old Testament to show that Jesus was just simply fulfilling the Old Testament, not writing a whole new law. Remember the 12 apostles? There were 12 leaders of the tribes of the families in Israel, yes? And you know there are also 70 elders in the Old Testament who Jesus, in fact, just look this up. We got a little time. You're not going anywhere. It's Friday night. We're, having, we're a family. I mean, I, they didn't fly me all the way here and here to not preach, right? Okay. Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. Something fascinating. Numbers 11, verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to them and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. What an interesting thing that the Lord gathered together these 70 and in the Old Testament put the Spirit on them and they prophesied. And Jesus said, after I establish the 12, let me send out 70. It's interesting. Just throwing that out there. Now, commenting on Luke chapter 10, in Acts of the Apostles we read this statement. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm commenting on Luke 9 and Luke 10, the sending of the 12 and the sending of the 70. What was his purpose in that? What was the mission? What was the vision Christ wanted to cast? Watch this now. Acts of the Apostles, page 32. When he sent forth the 12 and afterward the 70 to proclaim the kingdom of God, he was teaching them their duty to impart to others what he had made known to them. Okay? So he was trying to teach them that your job is to do what I've trained you to do. And again, this is an extending in tomorrow. Jesus' job was not necessarily to do ministry, though of course he ministered. He definitely saw a big portion of his work, one of the primary missions of his life, was not just to do ministry, but to train others to do ministry. Okay? Again, watch this. He sent forth, when he sent forth the 12 and afterward the 70 to proclaim the kingdom of God, he was teaching them to their duty to impart to others what he had made known to them. And notice this, in all his work, in how much of his work? 
everything Jesus did had this objective in mind. In all his work, he was training them for individual labor to be extended as their numbers increased and eventually to reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Now let me break that down a little bit. In all his work, he was training them for individual labor. And notice this individual labor is to be extended as their numbers increased. The, person, the reason I bring this out is that apparently individual labor by disciples of Jesus to lead people to Jesus was not a stopgap measure until they could build mammoth institutions. Okay. It was the methodology that was supposed to continue no matter small or large the church, everyone works for Jesus. That was to be extended till the whole world heard the message of Jesus Christ. That was the methodology. And why was it the methodology? Because that's how the Father does his work in heaven. That's how he did in the Old Testament. Jesus said, this is my mission. It's not just to do ministry, but to train people to do ministry. He was a living, breathing, training center for Christian workers. John chapter 11. John chapter 11, as we continue to flesh this out. A couple interesting points in the resurrection of Lazarus. It's just so weird that the man was raised from the dead and we say, yeah, 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 the resurrection of Lazarus. Now let's find something interesting there. Obviously the raising from the dead is by far the most interesting thing, but for our purpose tonight, I want you to focus on just a couple passages. Verse 38 of John chapter 11. Then again Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Verse 39 is critical. Jesus said, take away the stone. Okay, just interesting. Take away the stone. Now, of course, Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you, believe, uh, that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out. But it adds this, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, I'm not particularly sure, perhaps Dr. Hossel can tell you how people were put together in their grave clothes, but I don't know if they were bound in such a way that their whole body was bound, you know, legs together, or they just wrapped each leg individually so that if, you know, you could walk if you had such the ability. But the picture that comes to my mind is a picture of someone who's just wrapped up with his face covered and his feet bound together in his arms, and there's this great miracle. Lazarus, come forth, and he awakes. <laughs> and you can almost like, give me a minute, you know. <laughs> it's going to take a minute. And Jesus specifically makes the point, somebody please go help the man, right? Go take off those grave clothes. Now, the point that I bring out here is verse 39 and verse 44. 
Jesus obviously has the power to, he specifically stayed away so that people would know that Lazarus was really, really dead. Completely, 100%, not just sick, not just really tired, but just dead. Literally smelling bad dead. And I'm not trying to be hyperbole, that's what scripture tells us. Yet Jesus just speaks the word, Lazarus come forth. And the dead man is raised to life. So my question is, if he has that much power, that much authority to command even death to flee and can put life back in a gentleman, why can't he move the stone? And why didn't he come out, of, of all the things, with the grave clothes off? Why did he do that? Well, fortunately, we have a prophetic voice that gives us insight. Commenting on this, Christ could have commanded the stone to remove, and it would have obeyed his voice, which that alone is just, that's cool. He could just talk to the rock, and it would have just obeyed, yes, sir. But now watch. He could have bidden the angels who were close by his side to do this. So he could have had the rock move itself. He could have had the angels who were right there and ever ready, and they're the ministers for him, right? They, they're the foot soldiers. They could have moved the stone. At his bidding, invisible hands would have removed the stone, but it was to be taken away by human hands. What's the lesson? Thus, Christ would show that humanity is to cooperate with divinity. Now notice this principle. You're going to have to think about it for a minute. What human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. You didn't quite hear it. Here we go. What human power can do, what he has given you the ability to do, and obviously none of us can even live without him starting us up, right, and getting us going. And we, in him we have our being. I get that. But what he has given us the ability to do, what human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. God's not going to do for you what he's already given you the ability to do. Goes on. God does not dispense with man's aid. He strengthens him, cooperating with him as he uses the powers and capabilities given him. And again, we see in uh, Inspired Counsel here, Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2, page 365, when it talks about the taking off of the grave clothes. What was the significance of that? The same lesson. Human hands are again brought into requisition to do the work which it is possible for them to do. God's not going to do for you something he's told you to do and given you the ability to do it. If he's given you legs, he's not going to use you like a puppet. He says, get up and walk. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 35.
Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 35, of, again, likely a story. Hopefully every story in the life of Jesus is something familiar to you, but we'll start with just verse 30, give it a little more context. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves for a deserted, to a deserted place and rest a while. Notice they're returning from mission work. So they were going to come apart, have a little respite. For there were many coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat. So they departed to a desert place in a boat by themselves. But, verse 33, the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. So you get the picture. They're going across the boat and you can look on the shore. Little dust clouds trying to run around. They're going to guess where he's going to land and they're going to be there. They arrived before them and came together to him. So as soon as they get out, the crowd that they left is now back again. Verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Uh, Another parenthetical statement, I genuinely desire for the Lord to give me an increased sense of longing for the lost. In that if I am having a really bad, hard, tired day from literally doing ministry, that if I go home to escape and a crowd followed me there, that my first reaction would be to have sympathy on them and just keep working. This is what Jesus had. Well, it continues on. Verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into surrounding country and villages and buy for themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And Jesus notices this, aha, teaching moment. So what's he say in verse 37? But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. You. You. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. You know, couldn't Jesus have just done all this himself? Of course. But he's using it as an opportunity to train. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then, notice this, what he does, key. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. He doesn't just say, have everyone sit down. He has them sit down in groups. Why? Let's continue studying. Why would he have them sit down in groups? What is Jesus about to do? Of course, in verse 40, they they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. So apparently this would have taken some time. You have 5,000 people get together in 50s and hundreds and the disciples are there practicing, putting them together in these different groups. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed them and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Review and Herald, March 29, 1898. When Christ fed the multitude, each one of the disciples was given a part in the work. Christ asked his father's blessing on the food, and it came, but the work was not left to one man. Who is the one man in this reference? Jesus, right? 
Each one was given something to do. Then here's the spiritual application. So it is now. God has given to every man his work, and he expects all to do their part faithfully. When the truth is presented, God does not design that one man shall do the greatest part of the work. No man should put himself and his work in the place of God. One man's voice must not be heard continually while others stand by as onlookers. All are to labor for the promotion of the work. Every available power is to be used to carry forward the great work. And by the way, going back to the groups of 50s and 100s, why would they group together that way? Well, let's continue on. Signs of the Times, January 22, 1902. Again, speaking of, the, uh, of this experience, Christ received from the Father, he imparted to the disciples, they imparted to the multitude, and catch this, and the people to one another. So get this, God blesses Jesus, Jesus has his trained workers, but the workers have already organized the people into their groups, and he gives them to the groups, and the groups pass them out to themselves. It's a fascinating model of ministry, that God raises up his workers, but they are supposed to put other people to work. Just as Christ did his ministry, so they're to do theirs. They are supposed to carry on the training ministry that Jesus Christ himself did. goes on to say, so all who are united with Christ will receive from him the bread of life, the heavenly food, and impart it to others. Got to listen carefully now. None can keep his law. Well, I'm glad it doesn't end there, but none can keep his law without ministering to others. Wasn't this the lesson of the rich young ruler? All these things I have kept, I've never dishonored my parents, I've never cheated on my wife, I've never, you know, I've never stolen anything, I've never killed anyone, I've kept the Sabbath day, I've never taken the Lord. Every commandment you can think of, and Jesus is like, great, you're this close to perfect, now give everything and give to others. And he went away sad. This is the same lesson here. None can keep his law without ministering to others. Again, cutting to the end of the page, the church was not blessed just to be blessed. It was blessed to be a blessing. We're not here for us. We're here to develop the character of Jesus, and Jesus was all about others. Come back to that tomorrow night. John chapter 17, at the close of Jesus' ministry. I wanted to show you that this is from the very beginning to the very end, the burden on his heart was not only doing the work of ministry, but training others to do the work of ministry. John chapter 17, in the prayer that Jesus prays, coming to the close of his earthly life, reviewing what he has done, and praying for those who will come behind. John chapter 17 and verse 18. He says to his father, as you sent me into the world... So in the same manner, with the same job, the same way that you sent me, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Notice he says, the same way I was sent here, now I'm sending them out there. They are to simply replicate, duplicate, duplicate my ministry in the world. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, we're all very familiar with it. Jesus, parting words in this gospel record, Verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So you would think he's going to say, now I have all power. I can do all things, so I will do ministry. 
No, he says, all power has been given me, all authority has given me, so I'm going to tell you what to do. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So the stuff I taught you, you teach them, and they become disciples. And if you did it right, you're going to do it like I did, and they'll be discipling other people. Everyone gives to someone else, and then that person gives to someone else, and gives to someone else something Mrs. White refers to as the circuit of beneficence. You receive to give. Jesus says, you've been with me, I've been training you, now go. Do what you know to do. Acts chapter 1, the beginning of the early Christian church, the last recorded words of Christ by, by Luke here in Acts chapter 1. And verse 8, the thesis statement for the book of Acts. And we'll be building on from there, but it says here, Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. You're going to tell people about me. You're going to teach people like I taught. You're going to be living ambassadors for me. You're going to be little mini-me's, if you will. People are going to see you and they're going to see me. They're going to listen to you and they're going to be taught by you like I taught you. Be witness to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the end of the earth. So we see Acts chapter 2. The church is born. So we're transitioning now from Jesus. Now those apostles that he trained, what was their ministry like? What happened in the early church? Doing a quick survey of the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost comes. They're fully converted. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit just as Jesus said they would. And Peter stands up. This time he has a good speech to do. He has a, something fascinating to say and he gives a present truth message. You read this. By the way, you study Acts chapter 2, that Pentecost sermon. Can we just talk like we're people? Okay. I wish the Seventh-day Adventist church were more Pentecostal. Okay. Now, I can't just leave that hang out there. I've got to explain myself, right? <laughs> now, when you typically hear of the word Pentecostal, you have some certain images come to your mind, right? Faith healing, holy rolling, big bang going, everything is, you know, chaos, speaking in tongues, the whole thing. I want Pentecost like the Bible teaches it, okay? On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up to preach, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he preached a Bible-based message. 26 verses, 13 of which were direct quotations from the Bible. 11 of those verses of the 26 were explanations of what they just heard from Scripture, and two verses were an appeal. No one got healed, no mention of music whatsoever, and in fact what made them confused was the fact that they did understand, not the fact that they didn't understand. Somehow the devil has taken this day of Pentecost and has turned it into something completely the opposite. I want to see Adventists be Pentecostal as the scripture teaches. That we have present truth, Bible-based messages, and everyone is lit on fire with the Holy Spirit, not in a crazy, chaotic way, but organized for service. To go out and do a thing. That's not the appeal either. I just had to say some stuff. Acts chapter 2, he preaches this message. And watch what happens as a result of this message. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 41. 
Then those who gladly received his word, notice it was based on the word, were what? Baptized, fulfilling the great commission. He taught them all things. He explained he was a witness for Jesus Christ. They accept, by the way, that was a powerful sermon to preach. These are people just 50 days earlier who had counted crucify him. And now he lays a biblical sermon that says, that guy you crucified was your Messiah. You killed Christ. And notice their response is, what can we do? They were pierced to the heart. Fascinating, by the way. They were pierced to the heart. And they repented. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, gives almost the identical sermon to the leaders, the Sanhedrin. And the Bible records that they were pierced to the heart. Same message. Same piercing in the heart. But where these people repented and came back into the fold, the others put their fingers in their ears, shouted at the top of their voices, and killed Jesus, thus bringing to end the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Their time of probation had closed with the rejection of the truth. Fascinatingly enough, also, by the way, more times in Scripture when people are as one man or unified or all in one accord, those are the enemies of Christ more often than they are the followers of Christ. Satan likes unity too. Go back and look at the story of Babel. One language, one voice, they're working together. Don't think that Satan is scatterbrained and has no... He's organized for service, and what in the world makes us think that we're just going to go out willy-nilly and finish the work? Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly, and they, by the way, are the believers, the new believers, the converts, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Notice it wasn't the believers doing the signs and the wonders, but continue on. Now, all who had believed, we're now we're back on the believers, were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. What a beautiful picture of church unity. They were bounded together by the word of God. They were focused on mission, and they lost sight of self, and they were giving for each other. Powerful. So, verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And as a result... And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So he started with a core group who had that, you know, GYC experience, that powerful message, and they got on fire. But they didn't just let it die. They went daily, went over the scriptures, studied it out, broke bread, fellowshiped one another, and through their ministry, the Lord added daily those who were being saved. He was working through the new converts to bring in other new converts. Acts chapter 2. Now... Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was, this time it's not adding, what's the word? Multiplying, right? If just one person does ministry and wins another soul, and one, that would just be adding. It takes multiple people adding to make multiplication. Okay? So everyone's working. The church is multiplying. The number of the disciples was multiplying. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Because the widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we're getting that you didn't see any of that in Acts chapter 2. 
But Acts chapter 6, the church is growing large. New people are coming in. Strange new people. Start to notice there's some unevenness in the distribution. The widows are talking. And who do they turn to to fix their problem? Verse 2, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Apparently they were talking to the apostles. Hey, uh, before you go out on another missionary thing or before we preach the word, Peter, can you come back, just stay here today and help us distribute this. I mean, we need to divide it evenly and, you know, there's more of them, but we've been here longer and they didn't give enough and just help us run this, just help us manage this church, this, well, okay, I said it, this church. And the apostles didn't say, well, I guess that's my job. That's what the people expect of me. Okay, let's start hovering over this one little congregation. And it's not a little con- It's a mega church, right? It's at least 3,000 plus. It was multiplying. It's huge. But this is our work now. We're going to stay here and manage. Then the twelve summoned, and multitude, uh, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from where? From among yourselves, from among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this is a very rare statement in church work, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. <laughs> wow, that would be nice, you know. Everybody said, that's a fantastic idea. They understood where this could go. This is a difficult thing. And we, the natural inherent temptation of humanity is to look to their leaders. All right, now fix our problems. Fix the fix. And they're like, mm, let's think about it. And I'm guessing they were thinking, what would Jesus do? And they recall, well, we know exactly what Jesus would do. We were with him. He would set us over the work and he would keep, Right? And we're supposed to be representing him. You keep working here. We're going to go preach the word there. That's our mission. That's our method. That's our message. That's what we do. Now, watch what happens. And they chose Stephen, and it goes off and lists them all, all the names of those chosen to serve. Verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. They officially set them apart, ordained them for this ministry. Then, what was the result of that organization? Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied, but this time didn't say multiplied, it just says multiplied greatly. Where? In Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obeying it to the faith. So the church kept growing and growing, but it's all right there in Jerusalem, which is exactly what Jesus said. It's going to start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But as the church, as we're going to see in chapter 8, please go there next, Acts chapter 8, as the church started to grow in Jerusalem, adding, then multiplying, then multiplying greatly, and now we've got this organization of local leaders, oh, we're firing all pestons now, this is great. Danger apparently is lurking in the church. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is now immediately after the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, it says, now Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time, a great persecution arose against the church. Apparently before then, it was relatively placid and calm. But now once the floodgates have opened with Stephen, 
the whole church was in trouble. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, exactly as Jesus had foretold. He goes on to say, a devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So a great persecution of the believers unleashed, and as a result, they scattered from their comfortable Jerusalem church out into Judea, the countryside, and even into <gasps> Samaria. That would not have come naturally to them. And I believe the Lord allowed the persecution to come so they would do what they were supposed to do anyway. How, by the way, watch, watch verse 4. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Who were scattered? Oh, that's the apostles, right? Look at verse, look at verse 1 again. At that time, a great persecution rose against the church, was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except whom? The apostles. So this time, the apostles stay by the headquarters, if you will, the conference office, and the believers go out in Judea and Samaria, and they start preaching the word. They are preaching the word in Judea and Samaria. Commenting on this. Acts of the Apostles 105 and 106. The persecution that came upon the church of Jerusalem in Jerusalem resulted in giving a great impetus to the work of the gospel. Success had attended the ministry of the word in that place, and watch this now, and there was danger. What was the word? Danger that the disciples, those new believers, the followers of Jesus, not the apostles, these are the new disciples, there was danger that the disciples would linger here too long, unmindful of the Savior's commission to go to all the world. You know, you ever get a bunch of believers around you, insulated enough, you think you're winning. Forgetting that strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service. By the way, there's a victory over sin concept there for you. Strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service. You thinking about the sin that you can't stop thinking about doesn't help you stop thinking about the sin you can't stop thinking about. Trust in the word. He'll give you victory and then go work for somebody else. Lay yourself in the dust and go be a worker for Jesus. Instead of educating, watch this now, instead of educating the new converts to carry the gospel to those who had not heard it, so apparently part of their baptismal vow, part of the thing that they were supposed to be in the DNA of a new convert was mission service. I've heard another pastor say it, so it's not me saying it, but just an idea. If soul winning were a prerequisite for membership, how many here would we have to disfellowship?
thank you for not showing hands. That would have been incredibly awkward, but think about it. Is soul winning a part of our theology as Seventh-day Adventists? Or is it simply receiving, I went to a seminar in 84 and I haven't left yet. Praise the Lord. Okay, great. Now have you taught someone else? Or are we living in Jerusalem? And does the Lord need to send another persecution? Watch this now. I'm not just making this up. Instead of educating the new converts to carry the gospel to those who had not heard it, they were in danger of taking a course that would lead all to be satisfied with what had been accomplished. To scatter his representatives abroad where they could work for others, God permitted persecution to come upon them. Driven from Jerusalem, the believers went everywhere preaching the word. Now, who are these believers? Obviously, we know they're not the apostles, but surely that doesn't mean every single one of them. Surely just the well-spoken ones or the very educated ones or the wealthy ones or the influential ones, right? Not the, the wallflower introverts who don't really like to go knocking on doors. Among those to whom the Savior had given the commission, go ye therefore and teach all nations, were many from the humbler walks of life. Men and women who had learned to love their Lord and had det- who had determined to follow his example of unselfish service. They made up their mind they were going to do it whether they felt like it or not. To these lowly ones, as well as to the disciples who had been with the Savior during his earthly ministry, had been given a precious trust. They were to carry to the world the glad tidings of salvation through Christ. Last paragraph. When they were scattered by persecution, they went forth filled with missionary zeal. They realized the responsibility of their mission. Notice that when they started preaching, when they started telling other people, when they started working for the Lord, then they realized that they needed to be working for the Lord. Notice it. It it took doing it to learn it. It's in the water, right? Too much time, too much theory in the Seventh-day Adventist church today. Where's the practical application? Good on you. But I'm serious, we got training and training. We talk about it at least, and we hear a lot of preaching about it. But when was the last time you went and won a soul for Jesus Christ? And I don't know, I mean, are we waiting for the latter? You know, the, the former reign never expired. Like, if, if you don't have the latter reign yet, okay, just use the Pentecost spirit that's still there. But do something. Ah, it's not a good appeal sound either. Ah, but I'm telling you, the humbler walks with like the lower class, whatever you are, Jesus says, get up and go and do it. And in the doing, you learn why and how, and it's good for you too. Saving other souls, friends, saves your soul. When they, scattered, when they were scattered by the persecution, they went forth filled with missionary zeal, They realized the responsibility of their mission. It dawned on them, this is what I should have been doing all along. They knew that they held in their hands the bread of life for a famishing world. And they were constrained by the love of Christ to break this bread to all who were in need. The Lord wrought through them. Notice that they didn't win souls, but the Lord won souls through them. Wherever they went, the sick were healed, and the poor had the gospel preached to them. 
in heaven, the Lord uses his angels as his ministers of salvation. The Old Testament church was supposed to be a living model of heaven itself. When every member of the camp was an angel to represent the character and the law of God, to win people to Christ by their life, by their teaching, and leading them to the center of the camp, which was Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus came, he didn't just come to do ministry, he came to teach how to do ministry. And he set his disciples to work in training while he was still there, and they put it in practice and put it in practice so that when the day of Pentecost came and that power attended them, they already knew what to do. They had watched Jesus, and the early church was blessed because they were faithful to the commission. And yes, they had some rough spots in the of, book of Acts in the early church, but through the persecution, they started scattering, and the new believers realized this is what we should have been doing all along. And again, Christ prayed to his Father, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let me lay this down as we close tonight. If God works that way in heaven, and in the Old Testament, and in the ministry of Jesus, and in the apostolic church, why in the world shouldn't we work like that even now? Friends, Jesus is coming soon, but the workers are few. And I don't know why we're not working. And that's not to say we're all not working, right? I'm sure there are people devoted, earnestly doing what they know to do and what they can do. People getting the training that they need, but we're not talking about a little program or an event from side to side. We're talking about being woven into the fabric and DNA of who we are as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, the three angels' messengers. How many of us are actually giving the message, yet somehow expecting the work to get finished? This is all laying a framework for tomorrow morning's message. As we look at that specific question, what does the model of heaven and the Old Testament and the ministry of Jesus and the apostolic church, what does that, how does that apply? All of this is so far theory or history, but how do we bring it home and land right where we are now? How do we go from looking at the whole thing from 30,000 feet and what practical application does that have in my life, in my church, my experience? Tomorrow morning's message is entitled, Doing the Wrong Job Well. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. We've laid a framework in these previous messages. Tonight's not the appeal, but it's coming tomorrow. And I've been telling you all week what the appeal is going to be. I want to challenge you individually, not your church, not your school, not your denomination, not your conference, you, to win a soul for Jesus. I'm not asking you to start a church, plant a church, start a, please don't start another branch of GYC. We have enough of those. And I love them. I'm here at it, right? Okay. But what we don't need is another program. Folks, we need people sharing the truth. That's going to be the challenge. Tomorrow morning's message, doing the wrong job well. But I hope you've seen the picture, the platform that we've built. 
So when the appeal comes, it will be the natural extension of what we study so far. Has tonight's message, by the way, made sense? Can you raise your hand? Was it at least logical? Okay. You might disagree, but at least you see it. Okay, good. I want you to be thinking about these things, studying on them, and already start thinking, Lord, if that's the appeal, how can it apply in my life? How can I respond to it effectively? I don't want it just because everybody's coming down, or maybe nobody will come down, but even if nobody comes down, if that's the appeal for me, Lord, show me how to do it in my life starting now. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you sent us Jesus not just to do ministry, but to teach us how to do ministry ourselves. Lord, help us to not wait for a new preacher or a new evangelist or a new leader to come along, but Lord, help each one of us to say, here am I, send me. Lord, the harvest is ripe, and I truly believe it. I don't think that your word tells lies, and I don't think that it's mistaken or only for that time and that place. In this time, in this place, there are people who need the truth of Jesus and the Advent message. Lord, help us to look for them. Help us not just to wait for them, but Lord, help us to seek the lost and bring them Jesus in the person of us. To that end, Lord, yes, keep us faithful. Keep us in the faith. Yes, keep us faithful. But more than faithful, Lord, let's go beyond mere faith. Let's more beyond just staying here. Lord, put us out there and make us useful for your cause. Make us your angels on earth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.